0: Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. And turn with me to... James, the letter of James, chapter 1, starting in verse 26. James 1, 26. So we are walking through James together as a church, which is fitting actually, because James is a master class in the both and. James is a masterclass in the genius of the both and. We've already seen just in our, our short walk through chapter 1 that, that we see that James is all about lament. And owning difficult things. And yet at the same time he's all about hope. lament, and hope. He's all about faith. And faith in action. Why is this? Well it's because James is all about Jesus. And the closer we walk behind Jesus. uh, The more surprising we will be I think in our witness. I love what Scott Saul says. Uh, he says, when I follow the whole Jesus, we could say the both and Jesus, and I'm quoting him, I'm too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. Yeah. <laughs> and that's going to be true for us this morning, actually, as we engage in James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, because James is going to talk about the difference between worthless religion and religion that is pure and undefiled. The real deal. What is pure religion according to God? Now we even asked that question before in our lives. An important question. Maybe we've never asked ourselves. What is pure religion according to God? And these two verses provide the answer. And I'm willing to bet that this answer will surprise you. I'll read the text. It's a short text. and You can follow along. We'll pray. And we'll see what God has for us this morning. This is God's Word. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion is pure and defiled before God is this. God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world so Lord, with my words and with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock, and our Redeemer, Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see Jesus this morning? Not just learn new information and be hearers only, but also encounter you to worship Jesus and to leave this space empowered by your spirit to not just love you but to love others well. This is our prayer. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, so a few weeks ago, I woke up and I noticed two distressing things in my backyard. Number one, huge wild mushrooms that sort of popped out of nowhere. And number two, these mushrooms looked like they were eaten. Now, a year ago, this wouldn't have been distressing to me at all, uh, because a year ago, I didn't own a dog you know where this is going. But now we have a dog, and so first thing in the morning, we usually let our dog out into the backyard. And so when I saw the remains of sort of a mushroom meal, I started to make phone calls. First phone call, our vet. Second phone call, animal poison control. Yes, that is a thing, animal poison control. It is a thing, it really is. I was surprised to know. And when I called them, I was greeted by an automated message, and in that automated message, they clarified two important things before they picked up the line, before a human picked up the line. Number one, it's $70 a phone call, and number two, they don't deal with mushrooms. (laughs) Because mushrooms, I guess, are too difficult to assess on the phone, and the stakes are just way too high. Uh, And I learned real quick, that healthy, nutritious mushrooms have, like pretty much all of them seem to have a deadly sort of twin. Isn't that a bummer? I mean honestly, isn't that just a bummer? Like we can just say that. So in Northern Michigan, for instance, when we like we like a vacation there every year, folks go hunting for what they call true morales. You know, as opposed to false morales, because true morales are like amazing to eat with some like butter on the pan. Just, you know, I'm so good. At that umami, savory flavor. But the false morale? Here's a quote. Causes severe gastrointestinal upset, whatever that is, loss of muscular coordination, including cardiac muscle, and, or even death. So, okay, so you have a, a true morale and a false morale. I downloaded this app on my phone where you can take a picture of a mushroom and it'll tell you what it is. Of course, it has all the sort of disclosures, as you can imagine. And lo and behold, my dog probably ate a shaggy parasol problem, I guess you guessed that there's a false parasol <laughs> as well, uh, that looks just like it, and is super toxic, so there you go, in case you're wondering, Dewey's doing great, or dog, uh, but I learned a valuable lesson in mushrooming, and that is, just because something looks good, looks healthy, looks right, doesn't mean it's healthy, doesn't mean it's good, doesn't mean it's right. Which makes me, you know, think of religion and spirituality because that's what I do. And honestly, I probably have never connected mushrooms and spirituality until now, which is a good thing, probably. But it's true. Just because something appears religious doesn't mean it's healthy. Could be false. Could be toxic. And this is what James get at. This is what James gets after. In our short passage this morning, the difference between a pure religion and a worthless one. Both might look the same on the outside if you squint, but only one is true, the other is false. James would say, worthless, or literally, without power. That's what worthless means in verse 26. And the scary thing is that James tells this earliest church, earliest church here, that they have the capacity to deceive their own hearts on this issue. So what we need is a good guide, something or someone to tell us the difference between pure religion and worthless religion, kind of like a mushroom guidebook for the soul. We need identification markers to know the difference. Because, like mushrooms, you know, the stakes are high, really high. We hear Lindsay read from Isaiah about the stakes. I was talking actually to a doctor friend about mushrooming and foraging, and this person is probably like the greatest candidate I know for loving, maybe like potentially loving this kind of hobby. And they said, you know what? I sort of stay away from it because the stakes are too high. I would want to eat everything I see, and I think the stakes are high with faith. The stakes are really high with religion. I don't want to get to the end of my spiritual journey and find out that I was only deceiving myself. Myself, and that has eternal consequences. Which is why I need this passage from James. He knows the stakes are high. He loves his church. And he knows what we most need is a reminder, the real thing, First the false stuff. James doesn't want us to be fooled. He doesn't want us to fool ourselves. And so, these verses I want us to say and to understand are profound grace to us. James tells us what pure and faultless religion consists of, not to shame us, to guide us into safety. When I read all the warnings about the toxic mushrooms, they weren't shaming me. They were loving me. So with James. He wants us to know what true religion is. And this is important. According to God. Because we can come up with our own standards, right? Of what good religion is, but ultimately we don't get a vote. What is good religion according to God Himself? And James reminds us this morning, and it consists of two callings, what Miriam Camel calls personal holiness and social action. Now, right away, what do you notice about these two things? In our minds, these are two callings that are that like, don't belong together. They're like water and oil. But James says, if either is missing. We're fooling ourselves. They belong together. We're married, like two wings on an airplane. If one is missing, you're going down. No matter no matter how much speed we have, no matter how momentum we have, no matter how much energy you have, you don't have a wing. And the reason these two things belong together. Is because they belong together in the character of God. The basic truth about the Christian story is that we don't make God up. We we, we receive His revelation. We receive how He reveals Himself to us. And we encounter that revelation um, in Scripture. And when we encounter the revelation of the true God in Scripture, we encounter two things. God is holy or set apart. And He is profoundly merciful. And so the reason these two callings of personal holiness and social action belong together is because they belong together in the character of God. How He has revealed Himself to us. God is holy and merciful. I just want to look at both together this morning. The first calling of true religion personal holiness, because God is holy or set apart. His people are called to holiness. So, Leviticus eleven forty five, 45, you may know this verse. God says it this way, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now notice one thing that's easy to miss and that is often missed in this verse. Grace is preceding this call. What does God say? He says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I I showed you profound mercy and deliverance and rescue. Grace. Now, therefore, pursue holiness because I am myself holy, the Lord says. He's not saying be holy in order to sort of be and to have my rescue. He's saying you are my rescued ones, therefore be holy. And so grace precedes the call. That's always important to remember. But the calling is still there. And so we read verses 26 and 27 through this lens. Just draw your eyes to the text again. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religious is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled, that's holiness language. Before God the Father exists to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained. From the world. That's holiness language. God is telling us that true religion involves holiness. And James highlights two crucial areas. This is not an exhaustive list, but these are crucial things, according to James, about holiness how we talk, of course, how we walk. And so we just think about holiness in our speech first. Look again at verse 26. You think you're religious, but you're not bridling your tongue. You're deceiving your heart in your religious words. That's the argument. James compares here the tongue to a wild animal. Can I get an amen? That? <laughs> that can hurt you or others if it's not under control or bridled. And James says here, if we consistently demonstrate, that's the, the verb tense here, a bridle, if we consistently demonstrate a sort of glib or careless or violent use of the tongue, our relationship to God is, is self deceit and without power. It's not what we do. If you've ever been uh, near or ridden a wild horse, any of you? Um, you know how powerfully damaging an untrained horse can be. I took equestrian class in college, true story. I should have taken mushrooming class. <laughs> and there was always a horse that people avoided uh, because it was wild or it tended to be wild. My, my father in law, he, he rode horses like all the time since he was a kid. And he cared for horses on his farm, but he was bucked off a wild horse and he hasn't ridden since. This comparison to a wild animal in the tongue, I think says two important things about our speech. Number one, this image honors the tongue, stranger. It reveals a high view of words. Doesn't it? I mean, think about this. The whole Bible honors the tongue. You could say the Christian story is a story of sort of high view of words, because at the very beginning of the story, God created all things with what? His word. His speech. It's the first thing you encounter in the true story of the world, is the power of God's speech. And then second, we're told that humans, you and I, are, are made in his image. Which means our words, too, have creative power. For example, as a, as a pastor, when I say, you are married, something happens that was not true before. If I say to my child, I love you, something happens. That is Benediction, a good word. And that is power. That is creative power. Those of you who write, those of you who write poetry or or write songs, you know words have power. Third, we know from the story that we broke the world with our sin. And we see that this is not just in our actions, but also in our words. If words can create, in other words, goodness and beauty, words can also destroy and break down the campaign. Words said or left unsaid stick and reverberate in our souls for our lifetime. Words said and words unsaid stick. This gives us, as Christians, A high view of the Word. A high view of the tongue. And fourth, we know from the story that the true and perfect Word made flesh, that's Jesus, came to heal all that we broke with our actions and our speech. Did you ever notice, I make this point quite often, that when Jesus says something, it happens in the Gospels? That is because Jesus is God in flesh. And that is because there is power in the Word of God. And that is because the redemption that Jesus brings is a redemption even for our broken words. So this image of a horse. A wild horse. A powerful horse. Honors the tongue. But also ought to humble the tongue. Because sin. Um, makes this awesome gift. That we've been given. it makes it wild. And potentially destructive. And so what do we do? We acknowledge that, we slow down, the power of the Holy Spirit, and we listen. That's what we looked at last week. We don't retaliate by multiplying thoughtless, angry, violent words, expecting them to mend what has been marred. As Luke Timothy Johnson puts it, true religion is taciturn. We say with Solomon and Ecclesiastes, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. See, if God used His word to bless by birthing us, and we see this in our text last week. If God births us with His word of truth, then true religion will do the same. We will will bless, we will bring benediction with our words so here's the question what if our neighbors and our colleagues knew us by our benedictions I don't mean like sort of how the benediction closes the worship service I just mean the way you use speech as a creative power to lift people to notice people to bless people that's benediction. I think this will like require a lot of intention. A lot of intentionality. I watched I watched a how-to video on how to bridle a horse, actually. It was, it was really long. <laughs> like eight minutes. I didn't watch like all of that kind of fast forwarded confession. But I was struck by how much care and how much time it took. It was like a very like loving, gentle thing. What if in the morning we sort of spent some time with God's benediction, his good word spoken over us, and then we took our, our, our time and we it. How can I be a benediction today with my speech? And at the end of the day, we can sort of assess okay, rewind the tape, as Ignatius would have us do, rewind the tape. And just say, okay, when, when were my speaks maledictive, and when were they benediction? And we can repent of that. We can confess that to God, and receive His forgiveness, of course, in Christ. But this is what it looks like to be intentional with benediction. And that's how we speak. How about the rest of our life? Look at verse 27. James says, True religion visits orphans and widows in their affliction, and keeps oneself unstained from the world. The world. Okay, so a key theme in James's sermon is friendship with God versus friendship with the world. And friendship, as we've said before, in the ancient world was much more akin to marriage and the covenant of marriage today. It wasn't the same thing as marriage. I just mean that friendship in the ancient world was deeply bonded and deeply committed to one another and each the other. And so when James says friendship with the world versus friendship with God, he's he's not just talking about buddies, buddying up. He's talking about loyalty, really. Loyalty. At your core, James is saying, do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples? You are my friends. Remember that? And James is basically saying, at your core, are, is your loyalty, is your, is your core friendship nexus with the living God, or Jesus himself, uh, and are you living in this fallen world with your core identity sort of in that loyal friendship, that relationship, or is it in the Lord, or is it in the world? When Josie, my wife, and I were dating and near engaged, uh, we were on different campuses in different cities, so... She was at Ohio State, I was at Miami, and we were not married yet, but she had my loyalty. And so even though we were far apart, that didn't mean I left Miami to show my loyalty. I kept my loyalty to her, even though she was not around, and that's similar to James's point here. He's not asking us to isolate away from the fallen world as if that were possible. When he says, don't be unstained by the world, he's basically saying, when you are in the world, when you're living amongst this sort of fallen world that we that we see every single day and experience every single day, are you remaining distinct in your loyalty to God within the fallen world? The image that Jesus gives for this is salt. Remember? Salt. Uh, lately I've been watching a ton of cooking shows. Josie, amen. You can testify to that. Right around bedtime. And here's the thing. I've grown really, really tired of the competition cooking shows. Anyone else? Can I get an amen? Like they, like the Food Network is basically it should be renamed. Food Competition Network. Because <laughs> what happened to the people who like cooked for you and taught you things? It's gone. I don't even know if it exists anymore. I look every single time and I don't see it. However, this sort of internet subscription thing that we have has two like kind of obscure cooking stations. And they still hold the tradition alive, I'm telling you. And they're, like, I have two new favorite shows. Come to me afterwards, I'll tell you what they are. (laughs) They're reruns, even, of old school cooking shows. Like Jamie Oliver back in the day, like the early 2000s, that kind of stuff. Like, what happened to that? That was great stuff. Anyway, one thing I'm noticing, I'm just loving this detail, is that these cooks, they're so confident, they're throwing salt around, crazy. One, even when when the water's boiling, they just take a fistful and they go, boom, like that. It makes a sound and everything sizzles. And I did it at home once and my kids were impressed. <laughs> and I'm doing it more, actually. I'm just like, salt, like, salt, just salt everywhere. I don't measure it anymore. Why measure it? Like, don't, here's some of the cooking advice. Don't put a tablespoon sort of in the salt <laughs> container and do that. Just grab some salt throw it on the food. Kosher <laughs> salt. Unless you're Alright. Anyway. They grab this piece They lift that hand high and they say, rain that salt on that food. Because they know that salt, this is elementary. It doesn't work if you don't do that. It needs to be immersed. Profoundly immersed into the food. Like a brine eating. And So they go to town. We're not worried about blood pressure, apparently. And that's the image I want you to have when you hear James say that pure religion is unstained by the world. It means you're utterly distinct and yet deeply immersed. This language from our time in Matthew. If you want a phrase for your calling to personal holiness, there's a phrase, immersive difference. Immersive difference. Immersive difference. That's a great phrase. Heard that somewhere. We follow King Jesus in all that we do. We're different. That means how we use our money is different. How we understand sexuality is different. Words, different. Human dignity, very different. Our life of prayer, different. Our life of mercy and our pursuit of justice, our priorities the kingdom of God. In other words, it's upside down. And do our colleagues and neighbors see that difference? And notice I said neighbors and colleagues. That implies that we are immersed. See, shelf Christians, we'll call them, are not immersed. Saltless Christians are not distinct. It's both. Immersive difference. Our God is holy. Therefore, we are holy. And that's the first calling of true religion. The second one. James tells us, is to pursue merciful action, because God is merciful, active. How so? Well, the true God is a God of visitation, first of all. Take a look at what James says again in verse 27. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God, the Father is just to visit. To visit. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So, the true God that we see in Scripture, doesn't just sit back and watch the world He made. He's always moving. He's always visiting. One theologian summarizes the entire biblical story with one image, a line, which provides the creator-creation distinction, and then an arrow that's cutting straight through that line, and the arrow's going down. Because it's God visiting us. It's God coming to us. It's God pursuing us. It's grace. It's His pursuit. It's His visitation. Always. God is a God of visitation. And when James says God's people, or His children, those born of God, visit, it isn't just sitting down to have tea, because that's not how God visits, is it? No. It's helping, it's caring, that person, at personal expense. God does that. Think of the Exodus. And He does it in the second Exodus, Calvary. Jesus uses His power... His, his divine sort of privileges to serve, and to die, to visit us in our state of desperate need, we who are enemies of God. Think of your own personal story. He visited you in your distress when you are at your worst is when you encounter your isn't it and so James' logic is this if we're truly born of God then true religion will do the same in our horizontal relationships we visit people at their worst it says in their distress not after their distress in it you walk into this because that's how God walked in your life in style. We will pursue, in other words, benediction and visitation. That's true. Think of how powerful that is. A life of benediction and a life of visitation. Just think about how powerful that is. And how utterly impossible it is without God the Spirit and without assurance of our salvation. True God is a God of visitation. He's also the true God of the vulnerable. Throughout the Bible, God reveals himself not just as a holy visitor, but as a God who visits the vulnerable, those without recourse to power, those without laws that protect them, those um, who don't benefit from the systems that they're living within, those who are vulnerable to abuse, abuse of power. We see this all over the Old Testament, like in Deuteronomy 24:19. 19, I'll just quote. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Psalm 146, 9. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. Jeremiah 7, 6. If you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, I'll let you live in this place. In this land. Zechariah 7:10. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner, or the poor. What well, one theologian calls the quatrain of the vulnerable. Do not plot evil. And I read these just so that you understand that this isn't a single verse like James is off script here. No, he's not off script. This is the story of God, this is who God is. It's impossible to miss with your eyes open. Listen to Deuteronomy 10, 18. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners. Why? What's the logic? Because you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. We visit the vulnerable because we have been, we ourselves have been visited in our vulnerability. And that's the gospel logic all throughout the pages of the the Bible. And if we don't do this, then then maybe, just maybe, we don't think we've really been vulnerable in life. And we don't need a visit from God, because we have it together. To that, James would say, yeah, that's that's deceiving yourself. The God we serve is a God who, who births you in your vulnerability, and then calls you into a life of visitation to The vulnerable. Not self-preservation. Visitation. And you can't read the Gospels without seeing the visitation of God's mercy on the vulnerable in action over and over and over and over and over over again. It was those who were most vulnerable in Jesus' day that Jesus showed His mercy toward. He's so identified with the vulnerable that He says, when you visit them, you are visiting who? Who? Him. You cannot identify more with the vulnerable than saying that. Of course, he identifies with the vulnerable on the cross. Matthew twenty five, thirty-five says, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. So James isn't making this up. Uh, he's saying true religion visits the vulnerable because the true God visits the vulnerable. It always has. In James' congregation, the vulnerable was the widow and the orphan. We don't have to limit it to that. Even then, and especially today, But this is important to remember. Biblical historian Ben Witherington makes the point that these two people, widows and orphans, were particularly vulnerable in an ancient world, and I'm quoting him, where property was largely controlled by and passed from male to male, and where a person without a father or husband was in severe jeopardy of poverty and destitution. If you've ever wondered why widows and orphans are singled out quite often, when we see God's heartbeat, that's why. Now we know why James reminds us what true religion is according to, not just God, but who. Take a look. See it? No, I'm telling you, take a look. Pure and undefiled religion before God, the Father. To the Father. Every so often, uh, while walking in a parking lot, I catch myself in a window reflection, and I see my dad, and it freaks me out. My mannerisms, my face, the way I carry my attention, the way I talk, the way I laugh, my phrases, even the way I view the world, Alec Moyer, right? I have to credit him for this. The point that he makes is that this is exactly what's going on in James's sermon. He's saying that true spirituality takes on our father's likeness. That's 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 it. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father. Look at verse 18. Of his own will he brought us forth by the what? The word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That that word brought forth is actually birthed. A real important point for Pastor James here is that if you are born of God the Father, that is, if you have faith, been given the gift of faith, if you've been born, reborn, your heart has been softened by, by God's power and His grace, if you're born of Him you're going to talk like Him. His word of truth made you, made you whole, it made you free, it made you, His word of truth, that is Jesus, the word of flesh, the word made flesh, saved you, rescued you, uh, brought you honor in your shape, like all these things. And all, all that Paul, James is saying is, you have a word of benediction the same way. You're going to be like your dad, that's what he's saying. And also, you're going to visit those who, who are vulnerable. Because that's what, that's what God the Father did to you. He birthed you when you were His enemy. At your lowest when you were bottoming out. Relapsing. Without recourse. It's a slow, messy process. Becoming and taking on the Father's likeness. Holy Spirit, make us step by step. We come here every Sunday, we, we confess our sins because we we acknowledge that we don't do this. But we also believe in the Holy Spirit. Amen? And the Holy Spirit is shaping us into the likeness of Jesus even when we don't see it. Especially in the areas we don't, we don't see it. The areas that we're really working on, those typically are the areas that we don't see anything. These areas we're not working on usually that it's been pointed out. I think it's pretty true in my life too. God is up there. And that's, that's His grace to us. Our Father births us. He uses His words to heal and save us. He gives us benediction. He shows mercy to us vin- visitation. Therefore, we do the same. It's our family system now. One uh, New Testament historian and scholar writes, quote, Every Christian visitation was anchored in the goodness of God, who was the Father and Creator, and in Jesus' practice of ministering to the marginalized and hurting. I remember a few years ago hearing about ancient Christian burial societies. Have you heard of these before? Ancient Christian burial societies. They were so captured by God's visitation to the vulnerable, these earliest Christians, that they wanted to show dignity to the most vulnerable image bearer, one who is now not living. Who cannot do anything for themselves. And they buried them with dignity. Why? My goodness. You know why? We who were dead in our trespasses. That's why. I'd just like to ask what are we doing today to carry this ministry of visitation forward? Todd Hunter says, quote, Every Christ follower is called to be an agent of rescue in this world. Isn't that a great phrase? Wherever they find themselves. So how can you engage in that calling? Just ponder that question. Sit in that question maybe this week. How can you be an agent of rescue? Not just an agent of benediction, but an agent of rescue. Word and action. Because according to James, you know, that's not optional. It's not a cherry on top kind of thing. The pursuit, not the perfection, the pursuit of personal holiness and active mercy is not optional, according to James. But central to what it means to be a Christian. It's the fruit of new birth. And so I would just view this passage as we conclude here, not as a condemnation of our church, but an invitation to our church, because that's what James is doing himself. He's assuming, as he's writing this sermon to this earliest church, that these believers struggle here, number one. And number two, that they are born of God the Father. And therefore, this is an invitation for them. And it's an invitation for to, you too. To, and me, So much grow. He's inviting you further in. He's inviting you further in. So let's just step back here and just consider these two columns together. This is the genius of both aims, isn't it? I think this means that Christians in our church here, we need to hold two doctrines together that usually get divorced, and they are these. Human dignity, the imago Dei, or the image of God in every human being. And human depravity, or a doctrine of of sin and of fault, and how the world is, is broken as well. Human dignity and human depravity. Usually these things sort of exist in separate rooms. What if we brought them together? Human dignity. I mean, James has a high view of human dignity because God does. We don't, you know, as it's been said, give people dignity. We, we recognize it. We affirm it. And this leads to costly, helpful, helpful, helpful action toward humans who are suffering. Justice and mercy, especially to those who have no recourse. That's human dignity, that's doctrine number one. Doctrine number two, human depravity, the Bible's pretty clear about that as well, it pops up in James, don't be stained by the world, which implies that there's sort of a fallen world, that we must be holy within. This has a high view of sin, the world has fallen because of sin, and generations of sin, with structures of sin, built to uphold our love of sin. <laughs> this means we keep ourselves unstained. It means we need salvation. It means we need spiritual transfer. It means we're called to live as salt and light and all of these things. Now, we need both. We need to affirm both and hold both because dignity without depravity tends to be naive against sin and evil and can lead to accommodation. But depravity without dignity is very problematic as well. I mean, say the word gospel believer or evangelical uh, to anybody in your neighborhood or workplace. And they will automatically assume your heart is towards the Lord. Just automatically. And I think this is because gospel Christians tend to have a high premium on personal holiness but not Costly. Mercy. Injustice. Concerns of injustice and in human and institutional suffering and harm. Folks think we're too heavenly minded for any earthly good. And that's because of a low, a too low view of human dignity. We'll be very bad in our counseling if we have a low view of human dignity. We'll be very bad in our pastoral response to serious harm and dehumanization. If we have a low view of human dignity, and ultimately we'll be terrible in our witness and self deceived, according to James. But when we when we hold these two things together, our dignity and depravity, we encounter a surprise. Jesus leads us there. Jesus is both holy and merciful. I mean, He is walking in purity. And so, how does He use His words? And how has He used His words in your life? I challenge you, if you haven't ever done it, to read a gospel and just watch His words. Listen to them. And then notice His holiness, or His sort of Loyalty to God the Father as well. And look at His mercy towards the moment. If you are in Christ, that perfect life of beauty, of both him, has been credited to you so that. There is no condemnation, if you're in it. And when you receive that, it will propel you forward into a life of benediction, a life of visitation, a life of mercy. So let's just pray for that to be true for us. Lord, would you indeed change us? We need it. Change us, Lord, we need it. Lord, would you indeed invite us further to this life of benediction and visitation? We pray this in Jesus' You spoke benediction and you visited us. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.